Yeah. That's the way we address each other throughout the week in the office as well. Um, I prefer most holy reverend or pastor of disaster. Um, uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Weeby, or, or Tim, you can call me as well. I'm one of the pastors here at Brookside. Uh, before anything else, I wanted to just quickly celebrate one more thing with all of you as well. Uh, if, in case you weren't here last week, uh, wanted to let you know that we communicated a huge praise uh, that uh, because of our Pave the Way offering earlier in June, and because of your generosity, God's uh, expression of goodness to us that way, we took some time last week, brought a grill out here, and were able to burn our mortgage uh, here at Brookside. So way to go, Brookside, one more time for that. Uh, so now we just have about, I think, if I remember correctly, about $344,000 left of our $1 million debt that we started this calendar year with. So if my math is right, uh, I think that's about two-thirds of our debt we've already knocked out. And if it's wrong, you can tell me after the service. Uh, but so way to go. Uh, if you guys weren't here, we had the privilege, and this was as gratifying as anything else, of putting pies in the face of Jeff, who won the competition, both services, uh, but also then Steve, John, John, Rob. Rob got this kind of shampoo with, uh, with the pie that was put in his face. So again, it was just a great time. Way to go, Brookside for that. A lot of you were probably expecting to see Pastor Steve up here this morning. Uh, he sent out an email after all just a few days ago, uh, recommunicating his desire to, in, in his excitement for this uh, series that we're doing through the book of Ephesians that we started last week that will be continuing our way through, uh, through the summer. But shortly after he sent that email, Steve got a phone call from family up in Minnesota uh, and uh, he was told that his niece, Tammy, who he's talked about from, uh, from up front on the platform before, uh, who's been struggling with cancer for a long time, his niece, Tammy, is dying. And so it was right and it was important for Steve to kind of rearrange things in such a way that he and Becky could, could make their way up to Minnesota and spend time with family. And so I know Steve would, uh, would appreciate prayers. I know Tammy and her family would appreciate your prayers during this time. And so, so we'll take a second and just a second to pray for that, but, but know that uh, we're going to take a little bit of a detour from Ephesians this morning, but Steve will pick back up in Ephesians where he left off. The, the plan is next week, so, uh, so keep reading Ephesians chapter 1. It'll do, you, it'll do you good, even if you've already read through it, so, so, uh, so keep doing that. But like I said, this morning we're going to take a little bit of a detour. Last week in Ephesians 1, Steve introduced us to all these great things the gospel accomplished for us and offers to us. And the detour I want to take this week is to step into another book of our New Testaments and take a look at, at the same gospel Paul is talking about in Ephesians, but to look at it from a little bit of a different angle and to say, uh, what can we learn not only about what the gospel accomplishes for us and offers to us, but how does the same gospel work in us and work through us to a watching world. And my prayer is that this detour into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is only going to reinforce the beauty and the bigness of the gospel, helping us, helping us to appreciate not only everything the gospel offers to us, but also the life that it, it compels us to live. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 together. Heavenly Father, God, we do pray for our time uh, here in the word. God, use your word to continue to shape us, 
uh, as your church here at Brookside. Father, may we respond appropriately to the truth we discover this morning. And then, Father, we also want to pause and pray as Steve's church family for, for, for Steve's niece, Tammy, uh, for Steve and for their larger family. Jesus, we pray for the comfort that you provide through your Holy Spirit uh, as cancer treatments have been unsuccessful and as Tammy um, faces an imminent death, Jesus, we, we pray also for the hope that you provide. May the hope that you offer Tammy as one of her daughters of you, because she's placed her faith in you, Jesus, may, may, may the hope that she has in your promises just be tangible through the love that she receives, through the family she's surrounded with, and through your Holy Spirit working in, uh, in her. But also, Jesus, make that same hope and comfort very evident to the rest of the family as well. Jesus, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, a book called Unchristian was published that caught the radar screen of a lot of Christians, and understandably so. The basic idea behind the book was this. Emerging adults, those adults in their uh, late teens, 20s, early 30s, uh, and a whole lot of others, don't always have a super positive view of Christianity. Based on their research, which was a lot of surveys, a lot of statistics, the authors described how traditional Christianity is often understood in certain ways, which, which these understandings then became the chapter titles of the book. And so uh, here's how the larger world, unchurched and dechurched, tends to describe Christians and Christianity. Let me just read these chapter titles to you. Christians are understood as hypocritical. They have a get saved focus where the focus is just on the soul, people often think, and they neglect the physical. They always seem to have this agenda where they're working on people's souls that way. Uh, A third thing is they're anti-homosexual. Christians are fourth, sheltered, fifth, too political, and sixth, judgmental. Now, the only comment I want to make on all this is that at the very least, this book reminds us that others are watching how we live as Christians. Others are watching the church. Now, this probably isn't a surprise to any of us. And what others think of us certainly shouldn't determine what we do or how we act. We're not Christians to win popularity contests, after all. But what it does do is this, is it gives us the opportunity to compare what we are being noticed for with what we should be being noticed for. Let's go beyond some of these general observations from unchristian, and let's get a little bit more personal as well. How would those close to me describe Christianity if all they saw was my life? What values has my belief in Jesus shaped? What priorities has the gospel rearranged in my life? Would others describe me in ways that are consistent with how I see myself? And would my wife and kids, those closest to me, would they agree that the gospel is changing me in the ways that I think it is or the way that I want it to be? Because the thing we've got to understand as believers in Jesus is that the gospel should be continuing to affect us and change us and work itself out in us in very visible ways. Thankfully, we aren't left only to guesswork on what this gospel-centered change should look like as it takes shape in our hearts and in our lives. Much of the New Testament is about this very topic. In fact, in a few weeks in Ephesians, we'll even see Paul basically saying, because of the gospel, live like this. And so what I want to do this morning is I simply want to, want to go to one of, the, one of those passages in our New Testaments that's sort of like a first century unchristian, so to speak, 
where we see a, where we see how a community of believers in a city called Thessalonica was described by a watching, observing world. We'll discover a group of people that was transformed by the gospel, and we'll see the ways this gospel transformation, this gospel transformation worked in them and worked through them in ways that were noticeable around to others around them. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, the passage will pop up on the screen. So however you do it, really encourage you to follow along as I begin reading in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 1 starts out, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your hope, uh, and your endurance, excuse me, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you. For your sake. So, just so far in these first five verses, here's what we see that the good news of the gospel has been applied to the church of the Thessalonians. Everything else that I'm about to read, then, everything else that's going to follow, is building on this reality that the, that the Thessalonians have already responded to the good news of the gospel in faith. But then in verse, verses 6 to 10, the Apostle Paul moves on. And here we see some, some specific ways the gospel that was, that was received by them took shape in them. And here's what Paul continues, in, starting in verse 6. He writes, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They tell us how you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So with the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do is this. I just simply want to lift three observations from this passage that paint a picture of how the gospel manifested itself in and through the life of the Thessalonian church. As we read how the gospel worked in and through them in noticeable ways, we need to follow up with with a question for ourselves. Is the gospel working in and through us in similar ways as well? If others were to describe us, would they pull out any of these things that Macedonia and Achaia noticed about that, that church in Thessalonica. So let me look at a first noticeable way the gospel worked itself out in the Thessalonians. The first way is, is in the way they received and responded to God's word. In verse 9, we read that others were telling the apostles how the Thessalonians had received them and their message. And then in verses 6 and 7, we see that the believers there in Thessalonica received the word of God. Uh, it was described in two ways, with much joy and even in the face of suffering. Tucked into this, this way that they received God's word, we see that it was characterized by this specific attitude of joy. They received God's word with joy 
and that the way they received God's word overcame certain obstacles, especially that of suffering here in Thessalonica. And I think this raises two questions we can't and shouldn't ignore today. First question, what attitude do we receive God's word with? Ended with a preposition. There it goes. With what attitude do we receive God's word? They're more grammatically correct. With what attitude do we receive God's word? The best way to gauge how we receive God's word, I think, is to examine how you approach it in the first place and how you respond to the message you read. So concerning the approach, we need to understand that whatever attitude we come to God's word with is going to have a big influence on what we get out of it. If we come with an attitude of indifference, that's going to color what we get from God's word. If we come with an attitude of doubt or contempt or pride or hesitation or guilt, all of these things become, become a sort of lens that color what we receive from God's word. You can even come to the Bible with right methods, but if you come with wrong mindset, that's going to color what you get out of it. And so we need to hear how the Thessalonians received God's word with joy and then pray and work ourselves that we would approach this book, God's word, with that same mentality. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, he says, your word refreshes my soul. And then Job, this guy who went through all sorts of suffering, Job, in the middle of everything that he was going through, he tells God, I have desired the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23, 12, if you want to look it up later on. I've desired the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. Does that describe the attitude that we approach God's word with? Or do we come to it casually, indifferently, pridefully? Uh, Whatever it might be, our attitude colors what we get out of it. So may we be the sort of church that comes with the attitude of the Thessalonians. But also concerning the response to God's word, we need to understand that this book as God's word should continually be shaping our lives. It is so good for me to, 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 to meet with 10-year-olds who are starting to get, to get into God's word, and it is so good for me to meet with 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds who are continuing to get into God's word. We need to be that sort of church that whether we're 10, whether we're 70, 80, 90, or anywhere in between, we continue to put a certain priority on this book. Uh, The Bible can be uh, foreign sometimes. It was written a few thousand years ago in different languages by people from different cultures. So, So for those of you that say, I'd love to get into this book, I'm motivated to do it, but where do I start? Let me just put in a quick plug here for a class we offer, usually once or twice a year, called Bible Basics. Uh, I'll only mention it now. Keep your eyes out for it. It'll probably be coming up again in a few months. But that's the best place to come and say, how can I get the most out of my time in God's word? With some good methods, the right mindset, and an understanding of what this book is. So, so, so if that's you, if you say, I've got the attitude, but I need the methods, check out Bible Basics. But if you say, I've got the methods, but my mindset is weird, repent. You know, I, I mean, work on it. Change it. Uh, ask for a right mindset. And because it says, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, they received this word. So may the Holy Spirit work that sort of change in me and in us. So we approach this book rightly. Uh, second question that, that this reception of God's word forces us to ask is, what obstacles are we overcoming as we approach this book? 
the Thessalonians uh, received this book and the apostles' message in the midst of great suffering we read about here. Very few of us, if any of us, have had to, have had to receive God's word with anything that approaches suffering. Uh, some of us may indeed have faced persecution in our families, among friendship groups, stuff like that, when we started living by God's word. But the reality is most of us simply don't deal with anything that comes close to suffering when we start to bring our lives into conformity with this book. But nevertheless, I think we've got challenges we have to overcome uh, still the same. We still have challenges that hinder us from receiving God's word rightly. One challenge that I thought of is that we live in a world of infinite distraction. On any given day, I've got four small boys that are pulling me in 16 different directions. One wants to play the Wii. One wants to wrestle. One wants to go outside and play at the park. One wants to go ride his bike around the block. One wants me to read, even though that's already four, and so they kind of change their minds like that. But, but so I've got four kids with 16 different options with what I can be doing. My wife loves to spend as much time with me as she can. I've got stuff to do around the house. I've got piles here at the church that I could get to if I spent more time on it. All of us here, sitting here this morning, have a million different things that are pulling us away from some of those things that we need to be doing but aren't, uh, aren't as urgent as some of those phone calls we need to return. So unless we make spending time in God's word a priority, it's easy for it to get crowded out by some of these other things. Maybe they're good, maybe they're not. But unless we, unless we overcome the challenge of distraction and say, this is going to be a priority in my life, and so as much as I want to spend time catching up on phone calls, even as much... As, as I need to spend time with family, if I'm going to be the sort of husband and dad I need to be, it's going to be because I spend time often, regularly, consistently in this book. And so it's going to serve my family if I just take a little bit of time, either getting up before they do, staying up late after they go to bed, taking some time over lunch, whatever it is, and making time in this book a priority. Um, second challenge we might face today is that many of us are probably familiar or we think we're familiar with the message of this book. In the midst of this sort of familiarity, the, the challenge is for us to never get this calloused heart that thinks, I've heard it before, so I can ignore that part, or I can skim over this chapter. Uh, we need to continue to be coming to this book with hearts that are ready to receive it, respond to it, and pray that, that those things that need to be fresh for our lives right now, the Holy Spirit working through the power of this book makes fresh for us. So, so Brookside, let's be that sort of church that responds to God's word in ways similar to the church of the Thessalonians. Let's open this book with joy, both when we're together here on Sunday mornings, but when we're at home on our own and with, with our families throughout the week. Let's respond to the truth in this book, no matter the obstacles that might pull us away from that. And then may something stand out about the way we approach and respond to God's word just like it did in the first century in the world the Thessalonians lived in. A second way the gospel noticeably worked itself in and through the Thessalonians is this, is in their shift in allegiance from idols to serve the living and true God. When we hear the word idolatry in America, what do we often think of first? Uh, most of us probably kind of pick up a uh, picture, this, this primitive religious practice in some foreign land probably with some sort of statue or totem pole or something like that. 
and then, and then we picture people physically bowing down to or offering sacrifices to this thing that they're in front of. But did you know that really the biblical idea of idolatry uh, is far more subtle and far more insidious than some of the obvious ways it manifests itself? You see, biblically understood, we commit idolatry when anything, even when good things, become ultimate in our lives in place of God. And when we look to, the, to this something else, whatever it might be, when we look to it to meet our needs and provide the satisfaction and fulfillment that we're designed to find only in God. A guy by the name of Tim Keller has written about this in his recent book, Counterfeit Gods. And, uh, and he, he identifies four idols that, that aren't totem poles, that aren't statues, but four idols nevertheless that are especially tempting to a lot of Americans. And I think he's right. The four idols he identifies in this book are first, love and family. Second, money. Third, achievement or reputation. And fourth, politics. And I'm sure if we took some time to do a group think session, we could list a whole lot more as well. But what we're starting to realize is these things we're looking to as a culture for fulfillment and satisfaction. We're starting to realize that these things can't provide the satisfaction we're wanting them to. And so this often sends people in one of two directions. Either they end up on some sort of incessant quest where they keep on pursuing something else and then something else and then something else that's going to meet that fix they've got burning, that, that hole in their heart that needs to be filled. Or for other people, it sends them into this funk of emptiness and futility as they believe that there's nothing out there that can quench their deepest desires. I've been reading through the book of Jeremiah personally in my own time with God, and a few days ago ran across uh, this, this passage in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, that, that resonates, I think, with, with the idolatry of a lot of our culture. So Jeremiah 2.13 says, uh, God is speaking through Jeremiah here. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, their own pits, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So, so my people have turned away from that thing that will really quench their thirst. And they're pursuing something that they've designed on their own that, that just isn't built, that can't do what they're hoping it will do. That's kind of this, this picture of, of, of idolatry, I think. But the thing is, when we encounter a life that is getting their thirst quenched in God and not in broken cisterns, this stands out. It did in the day of the Thessalonians of, uh, of the first century, and I think it does today as well. I mean, consider a few biblical examples of this. Consider the Apostle Paul. Only a life that has found ultimate satisfaction in God can say what he says in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can, be in, I can be content whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I have plenty or whether I have want. He's not looking to things to fulfill him because he may not have them. But he says, I found something that's deeper than that, that circumstances and stuff can't touch. Or consider Job. Job went through a ton of stuff. You can read about it in the first couple chapters <clears throat> of Job and uh, in one day, basically, he loses uh, his money. His kids are killed. 
his wife starts to argue with him a whole lot. His health starts to go south. All these things, all these things are working against Job. <clears throat> Only a life that worships God alone and not family or money or reputation can say with Job after everything that happened to him, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Some of us here this morning might, might hear those statements and we're confused or maybe we're even angry. We ask, how can Paul and Job say that? Didn't Job love his family? How can he praise God after he's buried his kids? Was Paul some sort of masochist? The answers are yes, Job loved his family. And no, Paul wasn't a masochist. But instead, Paul and Job are drinking from the spring of living water that we read about in Jeremiah 2 that quenches their deepest thirst. And they found, some, they found satisfaction in something that could never be touched by the ever-changing circumstances of our ever-changing world. And I think these sorts of lives stand out in attractive ways as people continue to search for that thing that, that, that they want to fill the hole in their hearts. At Brookside, they need to encounter Christians who are drinking from the spring of living water, who have found God the way he's pictured, in Jeremiah 2, that have left their broken cisterns and have returned to that fountain where our deepest thirsts are quenched. I've, I've got to move on. Um, so let me move to our third way the gospel works itself out in the Thessalonian church. Uh, and this third way is in, in their anticipation of Christ's return. Uh, I talk with a lot of people, and I don't have any statistics to back this up, but it seems to me from the, from the people I talk to, the little bit of reading that I do, that we're living in one of those times and places where a whole lot of people have just varying levels of despair about the future. And so this means that one area Christians can and need to stand out is in this word that we need to recapture as a church. This word is hope. Um, hope is becoming one of those things that needs to distinguish Christians from the despair and indifference and apathy of our culture. You see, people are, are increasingly, I think, realizing that sustainable hope can't be generated by any number of things they were placing their hope in. Hope can't be found in the economy because there's a whole lot of people with a whole lot smaller savings accounts after the economic ups and downs of the last few years. People are realizing that they can't place their hope in their health because people get diagnoses all the time that change everything about the way they're planning their future. Instead, we need to realize that Jesus Christ and the promises that he provides give us the only sustainable hope that is sure and full. This is a big deal, so let me camp here for a couple more minutes. Biblical hope is sure. It's not some, gee, I hope it all works out in the end sort of hope. Rather, biblically, hope is eager expectation and confident anticipation. It's like my kids who know that we've bought a whole lot of fireworks and we're going to blow them up eventually. Um, their hope isn't a, is it actually going to happen? It's not that sort of hope. Instead, their hope is a, when is it going to happen sort of hope. They know it's coming because we went to the tent, spent far more than my wife was comfortable with spending for things we're going to blow up in this joyful celebration tonight with I mean, it's great to see four little boys. They just get smiles when they see the fireworks tent, so they're conditioned well. 
Um, but, uh, but, but they know it's coming because they know we've bought the fireworks. So, so all the pieces are in place. It's not a matter of if, but of when and how. That's the sort of sure biblical hope that we have. We don't know when it's going to be. But we can say it's going to happen. And it's just a matter of, uh, of how is it going to take shape, you know. Um, that should prompt our hope. Biblical hope is also full. And the best way I have to describe this is by contrasting the, e- the Easter egg hunts of my wife's family and, and my family. Earlier in our relationship, uh, maybe it was while Carrie and I had, had been engaged for a while, or maybe we were just married, uh, but we were out at her parents' place. They live on a farm out in western Nebraska a little bit. And uh, we were there while her nieces and nephews were still really small, six, seven, eight, nine, the sort of age where people really get behind searching for Easter eggs, and it's, it's a big deal. And a lot of the Easter eggs, certainly kind of the plastic eggs you pop open, they, they had some sort of candy or small toys in them. But Carrie's family does something that kind of goes against every fiber that I've got in my being. And, and they hide eggs that are empty just for the intrinsic value of finding an empty plastic egg. Now, now Carrie's nieces and nephews, they loved it, you know. They got into it, and it wasn't so much what was in the egg as it was kind of the quantity of eggs they had in their baskets. But my family, on the other hand, we were... Um, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but maybe not far. We were more the sort of family that would melt down king-sized snicker bars and kind of pour them into the eggs to make sure that there was a whole lot of stuff in the eggs. Again, I I see a few people like shaking their heads and saying, that's disgusting. That's that's an exaggeration. But if there's not a whole lot of good stuff in that egg, leave the empty egg and go find something that's going to be worth it, you know? And the contrast, though, that I want to make between the empty egg and the full egg, uh, our hope as Christians is a full hope. It's not empty. We're not wondering, is there really going to be something in this egg when I open it up? Instead, there's a whole lot there that's a whole lot better than we often think and imagine. So we have a full hope. In 1 Peter 3.15, we, we read that Christians are to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us about the hope that is in us. I think the verse will actually even pop up there on the screens, if I remember correctly. Let's read it together. In your hearts, set apart or revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Let's leave it up there for just a second. Read that again. Why are they coming to the, to the, to the believing people and saying, what is it about you? They're saying, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you, To give a reason for what? For the hope that is in you. When is the last time anyone has ever asked me, Tim, there's something different about your hope. Tim, what are you hoping in right now that makes you you so different when everybody else is despairing? Why why can you be hopeful? We need to be the sort of church that, that is distinct and stands out because of our hope. And this lines exactly with what we discover from 1 Thessalonians 1, that our hope because of the gospel is one of the things that can make us stand out to a watching world. Earlier this morning, we were, we were, we were reminded that we're living in a world that's, that's checking us out, that's watching how we live and observing our lifestyle. And they're watching if the gospel is really like that. Do I want it or do I not? <clears throat> and so from what we've 
learn from First Thessalonians 1. Let's return to, to how we can be presenting ourselves to a watching world. Let's, let's, let's take some questions that flow directly out of the chapter we've looked at and ask ourselves, are people noticing these things in us? First of all, does our reception of God's word individually and corporately in our approach and in our response to it, does it show that the gospel is still taking root and bearing fruit in our lives? Is there something noticeable about the way we're receiving God's word? Second question, what are we looking to for satisfaction, for fulfillment? What do we worship? Is our shift in allegiance to Jesus so evident or are we still flirting with other idols? And would our functional gods be money, love, family, power, reputation, or something else? Third question, does hope characterize us? And even more specifically, does hope in Jesus characterize us? Has the good news of the gospel impacted how we approach the future? And do others see this in us? From Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we see that these are the sorts of changes that the gospel works in us and through us, but these are the sorts of changes that get noticed by a watching world. The same gospel that is at work here in 1 Thessalonians 1 in the church at Thessalonica is the same gospel that is at work in us. And may it bear fruit in similar ways and may it gain the attention of a watching world as well. Well, what we've talked about today, responding to, to the truth and message of God's word, uh, leaving idols for God and Jesus who will truly quench our thirst, uh, the anticipation we have because of the, of the hope that Jesus provides, all of these things lead us well into, particip- into participating together in communion today. Because when we celebrate and participate in communion, we look back to the cross. That's the, that's the point in history where we can say, because of what Jesus has done for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves, we can find our deepest thirsts quenched in the new life that he provides. And we can have true hope in the future because of what he's working for us. And so uh, now I'm going to call the host forward. They're going to begin distributing uh, the elements. A couple things I just want to mention before I walk down and Rob sings a song for us is, uh, is this. Take some time to reflect on what we've talked about today. Uh, We just have a few minutes, but reflect on whether there's idols you need to say. It's not worth it. I need to return to my first love, Jesus Christ. Um, Spend some time reflecting on whether your life evidences hope or not. And then use this time to, to pray and to recommit your life to these things that the gospel should be working in us and through us. Uh, we practice an open communion here at Brookside, so anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ is, is invited to participate with us. And then last thing I want to mention before I back away for a few minutes is just when you take the cups out, uh, simply just hang on to those. I'll come back up in just a few minutes and walk us through communion. Thanks.